Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. One afternoon in August of 2005, police in Clay, New York, received a phone call from a woman who asked whether an officer could be sent out to perform a welfare check on her husband. She explained that he had locked himself in their bedroom over the weekend after an argument, and that on Monday, he never showed up at their shared workplace and was refusing to pick up the phone. The woman appeared concerned, and, as it turned out, she had every reason to be. When police entered the home, they found the husband motionless in bed. Nearby, there was a glass of luminous green liquid. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 59 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award winning true crime podcast. Stacey Castor was born in Clay, New York, to parents Jerry Daniels and Judy Eaton on July 24, 1967. When she was 17 years old, she met Mike Wallace. Just three years later, they were married at Stacy's parents' home. Stacy later said of Michael, Mike was the life of the party. Mike was larger than life. If you needed something that Mike had, he would give it to you. The couple went on to have two daughters, Ashley and Bree, and the young family set up home in Weedsport, New York. Stacy was working as an EMS dispatcher, and Michael was a mechanic. They worked completely different shifts, which meant there was rarely any time to be together as a family. Unfortunately, the relationship began to sour, and both Stacy and Michael allegedly partook in affairs. Toward the end of 1999, Stacy started confiding to friends that she was planning on divorcing Michael. In December of that year, one of Stacy's friends, Kim Capilo, provided her with the name of an attorney. But Christmas was fast approaching, 
Stacy said she didn't want to disrupt the girls and would wait until the new year to begin divorce proceedings. Around the same time, Michael became sick. He was struggling to walk and looked on the verge of death. His skin was a milky white color, and he spent almost all of his time in bed. Their daughter, Ashley, recalled, He was having a hard time walking, and he was having a hard time talking, and one time he sat up and he just vomited across the coffee table and laid back down and went back to sleep like nothing ever happened. Michael was concerned about the unknown illness plaguing him. He visited his doctor, who suggested he may have been suffering from an inner ear disorder. Then, on January 11th, 2000, 12-year-old Ashley arrived home from school with her younger sister. She found her father lying on the sofa with a strange expression glazed across his face. Ashley called up her mother and said that her father was acting strange. He was pulling a funny face. After hanging up, Ashley sat down to watch television. When, all of a sudden, Michael stuck his arm up in the air, then dropped it to his side. Ashley recalled, It was scary. He was just sitting there. What I thought was fine, and he wasn't okay. Michael passed away then and there on the couch. He was transported to the hospital where he was pronounced dead upon arrival. Stacy told doctors that she did not want Michael to have an autopsy. She said that Michael would not have wanted to be cut open and asked for them to accept his wishes. Since Michael had been unwell in the lead up to his death, doctors simply ruled his death was caused by a heart attack and no autopsy was ever performed. He was just 38 years old. Stacy collected a $50,000 life insurance policy, which she used to pay for funeral expenses. She then took Ashley and Bree on a trip to Disneyland and settled into life as a single mother. Just the following year, Stacy met David Castor, a very conscientious and hardworking man that enjoyed spending time outdoors. David had his own business, a heating and air conditioning company, and he had a son from a previous marriage, David Jr. The couple promptly embarked on a whirlwind romance and Stacy was taken aback by how caring and compassionate David was. Their friends all agreed that he treated Stacy like a princess. Stacy herself said of David, David was support and strength and security to me. The blended family moved in together, and in 2003, the couple were married. Their reception was held at Wasaki's Lake Manor, a banquet hall in Cicero. Nobody from David's family attended the wedding. Just the day beforehand, David had made a new will, leaving everything to Stacy, completely cutting out his only son, David Jr. If Stacy died before him, David bequeathed all of his estate to her two daughters from her first marriage. Stacy took on the role as David's office manager at his business, and things appeared to be good for the couple. It wasn't like Stacy's first marriage with Michael, where they rarely had time for one another. In August of 2005, it was the second anniversary of the couple's wedding. According to Stacy, David had planned an expensive vacation in celebration. It was to be a surprise, but when David excitedly told Stacy about the upcoming trip, she said it wouldn't work because she couldn't leave Bree home alone. Ashley had a new job and wouldn't have gotten the time off to care for her younger sister. 
Stacy later said that an argument erupted between her and David, culminating with David grabbing a bottle of Southern Comfort and locking himself in the bedroom. Stacy told her friends that David was refusing to come out of the bedroom. One friend, Danny Coleman, later recalled, She kept going over there to check on him. She said she'd put her ear up to the door. She heard him snoring, so she knew he was in there sleeping. On Monday morning, August 22nd, Stacy went to work like usual. In the afternoon, a phone call came in to police. It was Stacy. Police communications, can I help you? My name is Stacy Castor, and my husband didn't show up to work this morning. I don't know what's going on. I'm just getting a little concerned because I haven't talked to him since 5 o'clock in the morning on Sunday when he locked me out of the bedroom. She said she'd been trying to call David at home all day, but he was not picking up. When he failed to show up at work by that afternoon, she became concerned for his welfare. She explained the situation, that they had had an argument over the weekend and that he had locked himself in the bedroom, and now he was refusing to pick up the phone. Has he ever mentioned hurting himself or harming himself? Or? Well, Friday night when we were arguing, he told me to get out because my kids didn't get out. I could leave. And then five minutes later, he said if I left, he would make me sorry. I would be sorry if I ever left him. Stacy asked if an officer could accompany her home so they could perform a welfare check on David together. The 911 operator sent over Sergeant Robert Willoughby, who met Stacy at the front door. They entered the home together and proceeded straight to the master bedroom. It was locked. Sergeant Willoughby announced his presence, but still the bedroom door remained locked and inside remained silent. After receiving no response from David, Sergeant Willoughby kicked in the bedroom door. He scanned the room and immediately observed David. He was nude and lying on his stomach on the bed. On the bedside nightstand, Sergeant Willoughby observed a short glass half full of green liquid. Beside it, there was another glass which had remnants of juice as well as an apricot brandy bottle. Underneath the bed, he spotted a jug of antifreeze, the same color as the green liquid in the glass. The sergeant immediately realized David was far beyond resuscitation and informed Stacy that her husband was deceased. She screamed, He's not dead! He's not dead! David's body was transported to the medical examiner's office, where he was found to have died from poisoning with antifreeze. Based on the scene inside the locked bedroom, the pathologist ruled his death a suicide. Just the following day, Stacy came down to police headquarters to speak with detectives and provide a detailed account of the days leading up to David's death. She told them about the argument, but said that David appeared to be unwell for some time, even before this. For the past month, he had been acting strange, and he had been predicting that he would die from high blood pressure and would not live to see 65. According to Stacy, David worried they would lose the house and all of their assets if he was confined for a long time in a hospital. She continued in her statement, telling detectives that she and David had been arguing a lot, and days before his death, he had ordered her, Get the fuck out of my house. Get out with your kids. This is my house, and I bought it before you knew me. She explained that she couldn't get into the locked bedroom because she had no key. She said that over the course of the weekend, she was worried about David's welfare and feared that he needed some kind of medical assistance. Two days before David died, 
Stacy explained that she was in the living room when she heard him fall to the floor in the bedroom. She called her friend, Michael Coleman, and asked him to come over to help lift him back into bed. Towards the end of Stacy's statement, she told detectives how she and David had watched a TV show about a woman who killed two men with antifreeze. She wondered if this had somehow inspired David to drink the toxic substance. She stated, I also remember now that I have been asked that David and I watched 48 Hours television show about a year ago in which a woman had killed two husbands by putting antifreeze in green jello. I think this show was on again about a month or two ago because David and I watched it a second time. Detectives weren't convinced by Stacy Castor's story. While David's death had been ruled a suicide, they considered that something much more sinister had transpired. They found it curious that Stacy wanted an escort home on the day David's body was discovered. And she made a point to let them know that she clearly wasn't at home when he passed away. The investigation was led by Detective Dominic Spinelli, and he made sure to treat the home like a crime scene. Detectives immediately collected the glass David had presumably drunk from and sent it to be analyzed. It was discovered there were three fingerprints on the glass, all of which were Stacy's. None of the fingerprints belonged to David. They continued searching the home for any evidence of wrongdoing. In the kitchen rubbish, they came across a turkey baster, which contained traces of David's DNA at the tip, as well as antifreeze, suggesting that David may have been force-fed. Since Stacy lived in the home with David, this evidence wasn't enough to warrant an arrest, never mind securing a conviction. Detectives weren't the only ones who were suspicious. David's son, David Jr., and his first wife, Janet Poissant, shared their suspicions with detectives, who informed them they were already looking into David's strange death and were laser-focused on Stacy as a suspect. Detectives quickly learned about the peculiar circumstances surrounding the death of Stacy's first husband, Michael Wallace. They learned that Stacy had not wanted an autopsy, and told doctors that Michael had numerous health issues in the lead-up to his death. Detectives investigated this further and could find no medical records showing Michael had any health issues, other than that he had been unwell the month before his death. There was nothing to indicate that he was susceptible to a heart attack at such a young age. Over the next two years, detectives worked tirelessly to connect Stacy Castor to both David and Michael's deaths. They regularly checked in with Stacy to ensure she hadn't moved home. They took phone calls from David's relatives, who all contended that David would never have taken his own life. As they were busy investigating, Stacy was busy spending the inheritance she had gained from David's death. She began renovating the home and erasing every reminder of David from her life and the property they had shared. Detective Spinelli and detectives over in Cayuga County met regularly to discuss the two peculiar deaths. After gathering enough circumstantial evidence, they went to the district attorney's office. Since no autopsy had been performed on Michael, detectives applied for an exhumation order in 2007. It took place in September of that year. Michael's coffin was dug up and transported to the Onondaga County Medical Examiner's Office for an autopsy. On September 7th, the autopsy revealed the presence of ethylene glycol, also known as antifreeze. 
he had been poisoned to death, just like David. The same day that the results came back, Stacy agreed to come down to police headquarters to be interviewed. By now, detectives had uncovered several inconsistencies within her statements and facts of the case they had unraveled over the past two years. Stacy sat down with Detective Spinelli, who showed her a crime scene photograph depicting two glasses beside David, one of which contained antifreeze and another with cranberry juice. According to Stacy, she had brought David a glass of juice sometime before he died. Stacy's fingerprints had been found on the glass of antifreeze, and Detective Spinelli asked her which of the two glasses was the one she allegedly brought him containing juice. She began telling the detective, When I poured the antifree, she then stopped and corrected herself, stating, I meant cranberry juice. You're confusing me. Detective Spinelli noted that Stacy had erroneously called antifreeze, antifree. The conversation continued, and Detective Spinelli pointed out to Stacy a number of contradictions she had made. Back when David was found dead at home, Stacy had told the responding officer that she had called 911 only after going to the house and being unable to get a response from David. However, Stacy had told Detective Spinelli something completely different. She had told the detective that she had never checked in on David at home before calling 911 that afternoon. Stacy had also told Detective Spinelli that she had been calling home every 30 to 45 minutes that morning after David failed to show up for work. Detective Spinelli had obtained telephone records, which showed that Stacy had only called home once that day at 12.54 p.m. Another inconsistency detectives discovered was Stacy had lied about when David fell out of bed shortly before his death. Stacy told detectives she was in the living room when he fell from the bed in the bedroom. However, Michael, the friend she had invited over to help, told detectives that Stacy told him she was trying to help David back into bed when he fell. Even more ominous, she had left him on the floor alone for more than two hours before finally calling Michael. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. After confronting Stacy with the inconsistencies within her statements to various people, Detective Spinelli informed her that her fingerprints had been found on the glass of antifreeze. Stacy immediately stopped answering and requested a lawyer, bringing the interrogation to an abrupt end. That afternoon, Stacy went home and told her daughters that detectives believed she had killed David. Ashley recalled, I was like, that can't be right. You couldn't have murdered him because they issued a death certificate that he died of suicide. Detectives were sure that Stacy had killed both Michael and David, but they needed further evidence. After she left the interrogation room, they decided to wiretap her phones. While they didn't capture anything incriminating, they revealed that Stacy was terrified of being accused of Michael Wallace and David Castor's murder. And it scares living out of me because I didn't do this. And I don't believe for one second that they found antifreeze in Michael's body. I don't believe it. At around 6.30 a.m. on September 14, 2007, 16-year-old Bree awoke to find her 20-year-old sister, Ashley, on the cusp of death in her bed at the family's home on Wetzel Road. There was a pillow over Ashley's face, and when Bree removed it, she could see that her sister was staring into space with her eyes glazed over, breathing faintly. Bree later recalled, I was trying to get her to wake up, but she wouldn't wake up. Nearby, Bree noticed an empty bottle of vodka and a prescription bottle of Ritalin. As Bree screamed for help, she then spotted a typewritten note folded in half at the top of Ashley's bed. It was an almost 700-word suicide note, which contained a confession to the 2000 murder of Ashley's father, Michael, and the 2005 murder of her stepfather, David. By this point, Stacy had entered the bedroom and was on the phone with 911. How old is your daughter? 20. Is she conscious? Yes, she's making noise. Is she breathing normally? No. An entire bottle of vodka, Ashley. Is that her? Oh, she's throwing up. She left a letter. She left a letter? Left a note. Oh my God, this is not happening. Paramedics arrived at the home in a matter of minutes. They placed Ashley on a stretcher. With sirens blazing, they sped to University Hospital. Her heart momentarily stopped beating before she was jolted back to life. She was suffering from a drug and alcohol overdose. Detective Dominic Spinelli had been investigating Stacy for the past two years when he got word about Ashley's near-death experience. He immediately suspected Stacy was somehow involved in what had happened to Ashley. He later recalled, Never would you ever think someone would hurt their own child. It's something you just can't fathom. How do you play God and decide which child is going to die? 
That's one of those things we'll never understand. At the hospital, detectives kept a watchful eye over Stacy while Ashley was treated. A couple hours later, Stacy was escorted from the hospital and arrested. She was brought to police headquarters to be interviewed, where she was informed that she was going to be charged with the murder of David Castor. Detective Spinelli recalled, She wasn't talking, wasn't reacting. She was emotionless. She didn't shed one tear. Here, you're being charged with one murder. You may be charged with another. Your daughter is in the hospital on her deathbed, and nothing fazed her. In announcing the arrest, District Attorney James Vargason stated, Based upon the suspicious circumstances surrounding David Castor's death and our investigation, I believe there was good and substantial reason to believe that Michael E. Wallace did not die from cardiac arrest. Stacy Castor was charged with the murder of David while detectives continued investigating the circumstances surrounding Michael Wallace's untimely death. On September 18th, Ashley was well enough to be discharged from University Hospital. Detectives were keen to speak with her, and she told them immediately that she had not tried to kill herself. This gave way to the realization that her own mother may have attempted to kill her to take suspicion off herself. Ashley said that she and her mother were alone in the sunroom of their home shortly after noon on September 13th, when Stacy mixed a vodka drink in a tall pink plastic cup. She then handed it to her and urged her to drink it. Stacy had commented, because I might be in jail when you turn 21. Earlier, Stacy had informed Ashley that her father had been exhumed and that she was under investigation for his murder. Stacy had warned Ashley not to speak with detectives if they tried to interview her and told her, To be honest with you, I thought it was kind of wrong that they dug him up. I thought it was inhumane that they dug him up because he was resting peacefully. Then, on September 12th, detectives visited Ashley in school and asked her questions about her father's death. Hello? Mommy, they came to my freaking school. They came to your school? Are you okay? Um, I'm going to be okay, but I'm really freaking out right now. I don't understand how they know they were going to be here. Oh my God, that bastard came to your school. Ashley explained to investigators that the next day, her mother was incessant about her drinking with her. Stacy was giddy as she exclaimed, Let's get just totally drunk. Ashley replied, Mom, it's not even noon yet. But Stacy was persistent. Eventually, Ashley conceded, and her mom mixed up some drinks. She recalled, I took a drink and it tasted horrible. It was hurting my stomach. Stacy replied that it tasted bad because there was so much vodka in it. She told Ashley to use a straw so she wouldn't taste it as much. Ashley said that as soon as she drank the concoction, she passed out. When she finally awoke at the hospital... Ashley learned of the Ritalin bottle and the alleged suicide note, which she contended she did not write. She thought back to the day before she overdosed, and she said that her mother had been working on something on the computer. Still, when Ashley tried to see it, Stacy quickly closed the computer. It dawned on Ashley that her own mother had attempted to kill her. She stated, I think she tried to kill me. She's my mom. I still love her and everything but we're all confused at this point. Detectives were still waiting for the toxicology test to see what Ashley had been drugged with. 
and they had removed the cup she drank from to determine what was in the liquid. As Ashley was recuperating, detectives spoke with her sister, Bree. She told them that she hadn't seen Ashley during the afternoon and the evening of the previous day. Her mother told her that Ashley was tired and was taking a nap. At one point during the afternoon, Bree poked her head into Ashley's bedroom, only to have her mother suddenly appear and shoo her out of the room. Stacy said, She's fine. Leave her alone. I want her to sleep through till morning. Stacy had also prevented Ashley's boyfriend, Matthew Gandino, from seeing her as well. Each time he called, Stacy told him that Ashley was very tired and was taking a nap. Matthew was suspicious. That night, he called and asked Stacy to check for something he had left in Ashley's bedroom. Stacy told Matthew that she had checked but couldn't find the object. Stacy was unaware that Matthew was standing outside the property and observed that Ashley's bedroom light was never switched on, indicating that Stacy hadn't checked at all. Suspicions against Stacy Castor were mounting, and on September 27th, she was hit with further charges. She was charged with the attempted murder of her daughter, Ashley. Analysis highlighted that Ashley had been spiked with opiates, codeine, morphine, and hydrocodone. In announcing the charges, prosecutors said that Stacy had poisoned Ashley in an attempt to cast suspicion on her for the murders of Michael and David. In announcing the new charges, District Attorney William Fitzpatrick stated, It will be our theory at trial that the alleged motivation was to set the daughter up as the killer of her stepfather, which is a little impractical. Then, in December, Stacy was accused of having two friends sign an affidavit that they had witnessed David signing his will in August of 2003. This was false. They had never seen David sign the will at all, indicating Stacy had changed his will herself. Stacy was ordered to stand trial for the murder of David and the attempted murder of Ashley, and it was decided that the two trials would be combined. If Stacy were convicted of the second-degree murder of David, then she would be facing a sentence of 25 years to life in prison. If convicted of the attempted second-degree murder of Ashley, she would be facing a consecutive sentence of 25 years in prison. It was decided that prosecutors could argue during the trial that Stacy had murdered her first husband, Michael. On Monday, January 13, 2009, a jury consisting of nine women and three men were seated, and the trial was ready to begin. Stacy Castor was led into the courtroom and took her place at the defense table alongside her lawyers. The courtroom fell silent as defense attorney Charles Keller began his opening statements. He said, Certain things about this case just don't make any sense if Stacy Castor is the killer. The evidence makes sense only if Ashley Wallace is the killer. District Attorney William Fitzpatrick countered this. He said to the jury that whoever wrote the suicide note was the killer, because it referenced Michael being given rat poison. This was something the authorities never divulged, meaning that only the killer would have known this. District Attorney Fitzpatrick then revealed that in the note, antifreeze was erroneously spelt antifree. He explained to the jury that Stacy had used antifree in an interview with detectives around a week before Ashley was poisoned. He paused for a moment to allow the jury to soak in what he had said, 
before telling them that although Stacy had not been charged with Michael's murder, he was going to present evidence of his poisoning as proof that Stacy had killed David in a similar fashion. The first witness to testify during the controversial trial was Ashley. She slowly approached the witness stand, clutching tightly to a tissue. She professed her innocence, telling the jury that she hadn't killed her father or David. District Attorney Fitzpatrick had some blunt questions for Ashley. Did you, when you were 12 years old, poison your father with antifreeze and rat poison? No, I did not. And did you poison your stepfather with antifreeze in 2005? No, I did not. Ashley's mind was taken back to the night of her overdose. She told the jury how her mother had mixed her a drink which tasted horrible. The district attorney asked her why she continued to drink it if it didn't taste nice. A flash of emotion spread across her face as she said, because I trusted her. Ashley described how suddenly she became extremely tired and the next thing she remembered, she woke up in the hospital surrounded by detectives asking what she had done in regard to the note. She recalled, I didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't write any note. I didn't take anything. District Attorney Fitzpatrick then showed the 700-word typed-up note, and Ashley commented, I am 100% positive I did not write that note. Under cross-examination by defense attorney Keller, he tried to suggest that Ashley had a sour relationship with both her father and David. He then disclosed that back in 2005, Ashley had written a letter to an ex-boyfriend in which she confessed she had considered suicide twice previously. Ashley acknowledged that she had, but said she had felt depressed following the death of her father in 2000, but she was adamant that she had never attempted to carry suicide out. Following Ashley's poignant testimony, Detective Spinelli testified about the inconsistencies within Stacy's various statements. He also testified that she had referred to antifreeze as antifree, which was how it was spelled in Ashley's alleged suicide note. Defense attorney Charles Keller attempted to minimize the impact of the detective's testimony by pointing out how he had to keep referring to his reports to refresh his recollection during the grand jury hearing. Phone records were entered into evidence showing that Stacy had, in fact, only called home once on the day that David was found dead, even though she claimed to have called countless times. The jury would then hear from Michael Coleman, who helped Stacy get David back into bed on August 20th. He said that David appeared to be intoxicated, but with something far more potent than just alcohol. Stacy queried if they should bring an ambulance, but according to Michael, she told her to just let David sleep it off. Under cross-examination, District Attorney Fitzpatrick noted that Michael had made no mention that Stacy allegedly suggested getting an ambulance when he provided a statement and testified to the grand jury. Stacy's youngest daughter, Bree, would also be called as a prosecution witness. She testified about the lead-up to the discovery of David's death. She said that it was true that David had locked himself in his bedroom over the weekend, as Stacy had claimed. However, according to Bree, Stacy had a key to the bedroom and used it several times that weekend. Testimony then shifted to the forensic evidence against the defendant. The jury heard that Stacy Castor's fingerprints were found on the glass containing antifreeze placed on David's bedside nightstand. 
David's DNA was identified on the rim of the glass and on the tip of a turkey baster, which contained remnants of antifreeze thrown in the kitchen trash. Stacy's fingerprints were also recovered on several prescription bottles of medication, the contents of which were found in Ashley's system. Her fingerprints, as well as Bree's fingerprints, were on the alleged suicide note as well, while none of Ashley's fingerprints were recovered from it. The prosecution then wrapped up its case, and it was now time for the defense to present theirs. They contended that Ashley was the killer, and had Dr. Carla Walker of MedTox Laboratories testify that she found more than a half dozen different drugs in Ashley's system, including antidepressants. They then called on Dr. John Roy, the head of the linguistics program at Brooklyn College, but the vast majority of his testimony was objected to by the prosecution and then stricken from the record by Judge Joseph Fahey, who said his testimony sounded more like voodoo than linguistic analysis. A handful of Stacy's friends testified as well, including her fiancé, Michael Oshner. On the witness stand, he admitted that he had lied during two grand juries about evidence in the case. He was present when his friend, Danny Coleman, found a pill bottle hidden among rolls of toilet paper in the linen closet of Stacy's home. It had been found by Danny after Stacy was arrested. It was a pill bottle for a drug found in Ashley's system. Michael had lied during the grand juries, claiming he knew nothing about the pill bottle. The defense would suggest that Ashley had received severe spankings from her father and was jealous that her younger sister was his favorite. They also claimed that Ashley hated her stepfather. During the second week of the trial, the defense called Stacy to testify on her own behalf. She insisted that it was her daughter, Ashley, who had killed both Michael and David. She stated to the jury, I can't give you a reason why she did it. District Attorney Fitzpatrick found that hard to believe. Would you agree with me that a, uh, a 12-year-old that kills her own father with antifreeze and rat poison to hurry the process along, would it be fair to characterize that person as a psychotic monster? Objection, Judge. No, overruled. It's a person who has some problems. Well, you know, I get up in the morning and I got to shovel my driveway. That's a problem. I'm talking about a psychotic monster type problem. Would you agree with me? No, I'm not going to. I would not define anybody who has a mental illness as a psychotic monster. Oh, so Ashley has a mental illness. Um, <laughs> if anybody could do that, I would say they did. Okay. Now, now we're making some progress. So mental illness. How would you characterize the mental illness that Ashley had when she was 12? I didn't say Ashley had a mental illness. You don't think Ashley has a mental illness? I did not say that I thought Ashley had a mental illness. Okay, well, let me ask you now. Do you think that when she was 12 years old, Ashley had a mental illness as you sit here today? Um, I don't, I can't answer that. District Attorney Fitzpatrick asked why Ashley had shown no signs of mental illness and queried why Stacy never sought out psychiatric help for her daughter if she were, in fact, unwell. He also highlighted the fact that when Stacy made a 4,000-word statement to investigators after David's murder, she never mentioned that Ashley was home alone with David at any point. In the statement, she said she was home alone with David throughout the weekend. District Attorney Fitzpatrick then referenced the wiretap recordings. He revealed that shortly before Ashley's overdose, 
Stacy was captured on the recording chatting with a friend. In the background, something that sounds like typing can be heard. Because you were typing the suicide note to frame your daughter, weren't you? No, sir. I'll overrule it. And we caught you, didn't we, Mrs. Caster? No, you didn't. Just with that little phone call, with a little click, click, click. Mommy, please don't hate me. Right? No. Following Stacy Caster's testimony, the defense rested their case, and closing arguments were presented. Defense attorney Keller said to the jury, You can't guess someone is guilty of murder. You have to know it beyond all reasonable doubt. Keller went on to say that if Stacy had planned the poisonings, it was the most clumsily staged crime ever. For her to literally have pulled off these two crimes, I mean, she would have literally had the most complicated, convoluted scheme in the world. And, and not just complicated, but she would have had to literally have pulled, I don't know how many rabbits out of a hat with luck over what happened. Defense attorney Keller's closing argument was countered by District Attorney Fitzpatrick. How do you make sense? Why should anyone ask you to make sense about what this defendant did? I'm just happy that we're here trying the defendant for the attempted murder of Ashley Wallace and not for two murders, David Castor and Ashley Wallace, because quite frankly, sense and love have both taken a holiday in the life of Stacey Castor. See, it's the little things, folks. It's the little things that convict you. She calls 911 and she's worried about the room being a pigsty. I mean, actually, every mother who's lost two husbands to poisoning and whose daughter is lying in front of her near death is going to be worried that the EMTs will think she's a bad uh, housewife. That's normal. She says the word antifree on September the 7th, and it appears four times in Exhibit 1. But that's normal. On the 911 call on September the 14th, she wants to make darn sure that everybody knows there's a note. She wants to make sure that Mike Oxner finds that note, and make sure the police know about that note. But now taking you to the peak of that mountain of evidence, I started out by telling you I was at a loss for words to describe this defendant. You can solve that problem for me because the word for this defendant is guilty. The jury were sent off to deliberate, and they returned with verdicts after discussing the case for 16 hours over the course of four days. As the verdicts were announced, Stacy Castor stood there, stone-faced. She was found guilty of the murder of David Castor and the attempted murder of Ashley Wallace. Outside of court, David's son commented, Justice was served. I don't have any words for Stacy." After the verdict was handed down, it was announced that investigators were going to pursue charges for the murder of Stacy Castor's first husband, Michael. But first, Stacy needed to be sentenced. Ashley provided a victim impact statement. Her sister, Bree, stood beside her for support. The biggest question I ask is why? Why did she do these things? I know that's probably never going to be answered. There are so many things that she has ruined. She'll never be able to see Bree graduate. My father will never take me down the aisle. She'll never get to see her grandchildren. All those things she took away from me. She killed two people and tried to kill me and blame it on me and blame me for the other deaths. That bothers me so much. I had to pretend for a year that everything was okay, that nothing was bothering me, even though I was worried about the trial and worried whether the jury would believe me. I hate my mother for ruining so many people's lives. I don't even know why she did it. 
what gave her the right to play God with people. And I hate her for having me be the one that found my dad, just like her for having Bree found me. I never knew what hate was until now. Even though I do hate her, I still love her at the same time. That bothers me, it's so confusing. How can you hate someone and love them at the same time? I just wish that she would say sorry for everything she did, including all the lies. And though, and I, and though I feel bad for her today as she sits there by all by herself, she's the one that did this to herself and nothing bothers her. After my mom is sentenced today, I'll go back to my loving home with people who care about me. She's not gonna go home. And if she hadn't chose to do these things, she could be home with me and Bree. She would not have to worry about anything. I've cried enough tears about this and I don't want to cry anymore. I just want it all to go away, but I know it will never go away. I have to live with this for the rest of my life. There are times when I get afraid, thinking my, I might turn out like her because she was good at one time. But I know I won't, and I, and I know I could never hurt my children like she did. I hate how she tried to make me look stupid in that note that she wrote. I've tried so hard to make something of myself. I have a 3.9 GPA and still she tried to make me look stupid. But Mr. Fitzpatrick made her look stupid with her lies. I hate how she made people choose side in our family with other, with our friends. Bree and I are children. People are supposed to stand up for us, but she's an adult and that is the decision she made. I think about this at night and I can't even imagine what's going through her head. All the things that she can't do. I had all these fears about if the jury hadn't believed me. What if she got out and tried to hurt me again? Or what if she tried to hurt my sister? I didn't kill anyone and I didn't try to kill myself. I would never leave my sister or Matt. I just don't understand how you can say you love someone and in the next breath try to kill them. I wish she had told me what was going on. She was my best friend and she took that all away just because she got scared. Well, I was scared too when I was in the hospital all by myself and I wanted my mom. But she was the one that did this. I just want to sleep one night without thinking about this. I'm not an angry person and I hate being mad at her. I want to forgive her, but I'm not sure if I can. I just hope God can forgive her. She has to listen to me this time. I didn't get a chance to say goodbye and this will be the last time I get a chance. As horrible as it makes me feel, this is goodbye, mom. As hard as you tried, I survived and I will survive because now I'm surrounded by people that love me. I'm going to good, do good things in this world despite making me in every sense of the word an orphan. Thank you Judge Fahey for letting me express my feelings. Judge Joseph Fahey then asked Stacy if she had anything to say and she responded, no. He then sentenced Stacy Castor to a maximum of 25 years to life for the murder of David, and then added another 25 years for the attempted murder of Ashley. He also gave her another one to four years for forging David's will. In handing down the sentence, Judge Joseph Fahey stated, In my 34 years in the criminal justice system as a lawyer and a judge, I have seen serial killers, 
contract killers, killers of every variety and stripe. But I have to say this, Mrs. Castor, you are in a class all by yourself. He further commented that he had never seen a parent sacrifice their child to shift the blame away from themselves. In December, Stacy and her two friends who claimed to have seen David sign the will were ordered to pay back more than $377,000 for the phony will scam, which had seen David Jr. being robbed of his father's inheritance. The investigation into Michael Wallace's death was continuing, and the authorities were keen to press charges. But at around 6.48 a.m. on June 11, 2016, Stacy Castor was found dead in her prison cell at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. Authorities announced to the public that there were no obvious signs of trauma and an autopsy could not find a cause of death. Additional drug, alcohol, and body tissue tests were conducted. In December, it was revealed that 48-year-old Stacy Castor had died from a heart attack. Stacy was never charged with the murder of her first husband, Michael, but it's widely accepted that she killed him as well. Some detectives also believe that she was involved in the death of her own father, Jerry Daniels, who died in February 2002. At the time, he was being treated for a lung ailment. Jerry appeared to be on the mend when his daughter visited him in the hospital. The next day, Jerry died, leaving everything to Stacy. The pathologist reported that Jerry died from natural causes, but at the request of Stacy, his ashes were cremated. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. For more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.